Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, October 12th, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma to talk about iFit. It's the fitness platform that's attempting to disrupt at-home workouts. Asit, thanks for joining. Emily, thanks for having me. And let me lob the first bad pun of this week to note that I fit this podcast (laughs) in my busy schedule today. (laughs) Well, I and everybody listening certainly appreciates it. Um, Although it might be worth noting before we get started that um, iFit actually, as I, I found out after preparing for today's show, naturally. Same. They, they've temporarily postponed their IPO um, thanks to the volatility that we're seeing in the market today. So um, it should still be fun to dig into it. I know I have a personal connection with this company. Uh, and hopefully this information becomes useful when they decide to re-enter public markets, hopefully once the volatility has calmed down. Uh, but until then, I guess this is kind of a prequel to a maybe IPO coming up. Yeah, so this is one um, that we were both looking forward to, Emily, because uh, as you're going to tell us, you've got uh, uh, some very regular connection with this company. And yeah, that consumer goods basket, we're going to have to revisit it. We looked at Peloton. I still like Peloton as investment. I know it hasn't had a great year, but maybe going through iFit will also give us some more perspective on the industry at large. It certainly did. And I have to say, I was really excited to dig into this because I'm an iFit user myself. Um, I believe late last year, I got myself a Nordic Track bike, which is powered by the iFit platform. Um, And I really think iFit, in my opinion, does a great job of providing some of the same experiences that you'd get with Peloton. In fact, if you're familiar with Peloton's business model, you're probably already familiar with what iFit does. Um, They make the equipment like Nordic Track, right? So they're the manufacturer, but they're also a platform for on-demand classes. And when I pulled up the iFit S1 and started to kind of scroll through it, I I found myself already excited because right there in one of the front pages was an iFit trainer that I, I, you know, I frequently watch his classes, sometimes live, um, Gideon Akande, and he was right there in the filing. And I was excited, right? I was I was a member of, of this community. I felt like I was seeing a friend. Uh, and I think iFit does do a similar job of Peloton in uh, creating those feelings amongst users, at least if, if my experience has anything to say about it. I think it's a powerful business model uh, myself. And to me, what interested me overall about this company is that Peloton has sort of punched out the awareness of the connected fitness industry. So it's the first mover, maybe not the first mover as, as you're going to relate to us, but it certainly is one that's captured a lot of uh, fitness enthusiast imagination. But here we've got a company which also has very well-known brands on the hardware side and a robust offering of content. And so for those of you who might think, well, this is like a second choice to Peloton, maybe not as great equipment, or maybe the classes aren't as wide reaching or fun. 
after reading through the S1 and just poking around on the web, now I don't use the products, um, I didn't feel that at all, Emily. I, I felt like it's just as good an offering and there's no reason not to weigh buying, say, a Nordic track and subscribing to iFit's uh, services versus buying a Peloton and uh, getting on their platform. I will say, I think both businesses, or I should say platforms, have moved in the same direction. I think the the level of content that you'll get on both is is relatively similar, that the average consumer probably has a hard time pulling it apart. Um, the differences that I draw between what iFit got started with versus Peloton is Peloton was very focused on the studio experience. In fact, their bikes weren't built originally with the incline and the de- decline functions. Um, it was a studio experience intended to give you the simulation of being in a, a live cycling class. So heavy focus on cycling, and they've obviously since expanded out into other avenues. Whereas iFit um, started with what was this experiential aspect of of biking, which is we're going to go outdoors, we're going to show you a cool trail, we're going to go up and down a mountain, and then got into the studio and the live class experience. So maybe if your focus is on, you know, biking outdoors in nature, you might be inclined to go with iFit before Peloton. And if you prefer the studio live class experience Peloton as opposed to iFit, although again, it's worth knowing both of them do both now. So they, they truly are competitive in the space. But what I found really interesting is that iFit sounds like a new fancy tech startup. When I got my Nordic track, I had no idea that the iFit platform and the Nordic track were both owned by the same company. Uh, the parent company, which recently only changed its name to iFit, is actually a really old business. It the company that would eventually evolve into iFit today was actually founded as a company called Westclo back in 1977 by the current CEO and founder, Scott Watterson. It's a really old business, a really interesting story. Yeah, in 1977, I was walking around uh, as a kid in bell-bottom jeans and um, Buster Brown shoes. That's the brand. <laughs> so this is way back, Emily. So Westclo, yes, yeah, started in the imported furniture business, importing furniture from Asia, um, worked its way along uh, to selling grills into exercise equipment. Waterston eventually sold the West Globe business to a company called Wider Health and Fitness in 1989, but he stayed on as CEO. And I think this is important because you're, you've got in this CEO a real veteran of the business who's seen the complete evolution from those first bikes to what we have today with so much technology embedded exercise equipment. Um, by 1994, Westglow was sold off again, this time to Bain Capital, who we mention on and off on this show as investors in various consumer goods companies. Um, they started to market more uh, aggressively and penetrate that health and fitness market. Um, they added the brand Nordic Track, purchased that, and Freemotion, and then changed the name of the company to Icon Health and Fitness in 2010. And this is where the company really started to transition into the company we know today as iFit. Now, in 2015, Foley started to have some success with Peloton. Waterston purchased the majority stake in iFit 
back from Bain Capital, which is uh, you know not rare in this industry. Bain Capital, again, as a private equity firm, they're there to extract as much value as they can from the companies they invest in. A lot of times, that simply means cutting employees and squeezing every last bit of juice out of a company's operations. But in some cases, they will invest into a growing industry, as they did in this case. Um, so, Waterston took a page from Peloton's playbook, and you mentioned that the live pre-recorded and pre-recorded classes, he added that element. Yeah, this is so interesting. So uh, John Foley, the the CEO and founder of Peloton, actually reportedly came to, to Icon, what is today iFit, back in 2013 and was asking for information and help on developing a stationary bike. And, um, you know, iFit essentially turned him away. You know, they said, we're not giving you any of this stuff, leave. Um, and then Foley went on to create what is today Peloton and had a ton of success with it. And that's actually what kicked off this, you know, at this point, what's probably going to be a decades long legal battle between iFit and Peloton about who owns the the you know, proprietary information behind the idea of a connected fitness bike. And while the big lawsuits have been settled, you'll note, noting through their S1, that they're still in a handful of legal battles with with Peloton over things like the incline decline, over the automatically adjustable um, resistance levels, these things that one business says they did before the other. Um, ultimately, I think you know, an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind, and that's probably what we're going to see here. Uh, if I were these businesses, I'd be much more focused on creating a a ecosystem that keeps people sticky. And we'll talk about the numbers, but I think Peloton has done that better than iFit, at least so far. Yeah, the one thing that iFit has done is to maybe overfocus on looking over its shoulder, Emily. They have over 400 issued and pending patents. So it's as if all along they knew that they had to patent every last step. That takes a lot of uh, energy on management's part. And in an industry like this, it almost sounds excessive to me. So maybe you have a point there of where investment and focus should be. It's more about creating that ecosystem. But um, what can you tell us? about uh, the, the members. Uh, th- this really stood out to me as something that you know, begins to look persuasive in an investment thesis, although the company's got a few caveats that, that, that turn me off a bit. But this is a bright part of the business. Yes, there's over 6 million members. And I should clarify that a member isn't necessarily a paying subscriber. Right now, um, the parent company, iFit, has over one and a half active subscribers. Within those active subscribers, there are people who are authorized users on a primary subscriber's account who would be considered members, people who are consuming free content from iFit. Um, those people would also be considered members. So lots of members, less paying subscriber, but they've had nearly $3 billion in gross merchandise value. which would make them the largest provider of fitness equipment in the United States by that GMV. So they're a very large, prominent provider, and you're probably already familiar with a lot of their brands. We mentioned NordicTrack. The sales of NordicTrack machines make up more than 50% of their revenue, but they've also acquired Proform, which is a quarter of revenue. Um, iFit subscriptions themselves, so that platform where you're consuming the content, um, those are only around another 13%. So right now, the subscription revenue is a pretty small part of this total revenue pie. And that's important to note because when somebody comes in and they purchase, like myself, I have a Nordic track bike, buy a Nordic track bike, you get one year of that iFit subscription for free. And then after that, they start charging. And so that subscription, I believe it's $15 a month individually, $39 a month if you want a family of five users. Uh, That's 
where the business is trying to get more and more of its revenue, right? That's recurring revenue. That's really, really high margin revenue. But right now, it's still very much a hardware business. Yeah. And it's just so interesting, Emily, that the company has uh, such an investment in experiential content as well to make uh, their subscribers, members want to renew. Um, the, the way I think of this industry is you have Peloton uh, on one side, which is more equipment focused, all the way to a spectrum of Lululemon's mirror, which encompasses things like yoga, meditation, etc. But you know, as you mentioned when we were preparing this episode, they've got pretty much everything that you can think of on their platform, which in- includes rowers spinning, the yoga and meditation that that I was just talking about. So this is something that the company exhibits a lot of strength in. They integrate this content seamlessly into touchscreen-enabled hardware. If you've got an iFit biker treadmill, not only do classes automatically adjust, but they learn from your fitness level. So there is an element of, uh, I, I, I would hesitate to call this like great AI, but I would say there's some element of machine learning in this. So as, as the software is learning your experience level, you can adjust that and it will take you into another experiential um, fitness expedition like hiking to Everest Base Camp. You can adjust those settings back downward if it's too much. I found that aspect um, pretty intriguing. Now, here's a statistic that gave you a little bit of pause. I think, let me see exactly what you made of this. 16% of iFit subscribers who've been on the platform for more than three years have purchased multiple pieces of equipment. Emily, you said when we were playing this episode, am I the only one who's not really impressed with this? What did you mean by that? Well, they define an, an a multiple piece of equipment as owning more than one connected fitness uh, product. So somebody comes in like myself who buys a connected uh, Nordic Track bike. So that has the screen on it, the touch screen that I'm paying for that iFit subscription with. Um, somebody who would own multiple pieces of equipment would then say, oh man, you know, I really wish I could have participated in that Everest uh, base camp hike, right? That was something that was done on the treadmill equipment, not on the Nordic Track bike. So after having a good experience on that bike, the next step would be then, okay, well, I'm going to buy the treadmill, right? Then I get access to the iFit content of treadmill-based workouts, and I can have both of those things in my universe. And I know Peloton has spent a lot of time talking about how they've created this like flywheel effect with their ecosystem, where once somebody comes in, they keep that average lifetime value really high because they're more likely to make future purchases. To me, that number was really overwhelming. We've already limited the the sample size there to people who have been paying for iFit for more than three years. These are people pre-pandemic, right? These are people who are fitness enthusiasts. They were getting onto the Nordic track and the iFit train very early. For those people that are still around paying after three years, only 16% of them have made that decision to own more than one piece of equipment. That number could have been higher and I would have gotten more excited. I almost feel like adding that in kind of detracted (laughs) some of my excitement. I appreciate knowing it beforehand, uh, but it certainly didn't add to the story in my opinion. Yeah, if if anything, it raised more questions. Well, let's move on to um, financials and just make a few big picture observations. So interactive hardware revenue, is the lion's share of this company's top lines, 87% of total revenue, 54% is generated from retail partners. So think Amazon, Best Buy, Dix, Costco, et cetera. And they've got a good direct-to-consumer component. That's 44% of the business. 
this interactive hardware piece has grown 108% year over year. Before COVID, it was growing at a rate of 16% year over year. But it's only got a gross margin of 35%, while that's up from 26% in 2019. And uh, gee, for anyone who's been listening for the past year or so, I have a thumbnail that I will point you to for any kind of manufacturing, and then you can smooth it there based on the sector or industry. But start with a 50% plus gross margin if you're manufacturing any kind of widget. You're usually doing okay when you consider your fixed expenses. So that's a bit of a slim margin. Um, Subscription revenue from iFit makes up the remaining 13% of revenue. And as you might expect, that subscription revenue is growing very uh, quickly and it's highly profitable. So the subscription revenue grew 85% year over year in in the most recent year. It was also growing pretty briskly uh, vis-a-vis that interactive hardware before COVID grew 65% the year year over year the year before COVID. Gross margin in this business is about 87%, which I really liked. So Emily, what are your observations about these margins? Well, you would just think that as more revenue come from subscription revenue, which is higher margin, as well as general improvements in both gross margins on the hardware side and the subscription side, that this business, if not being profitable, would at least have a declining net loss as a percentage of revenue. But in reality, it's it's actually the opposite. Operating loss as a percentage of revenue grew from 3% in 2019 to over 7% in 2021. And this is just because of how much money they're funneling, it, funneling into sales and marketing expenses. That that was up more than 120% year over year. So they're really saying, you know, we're not looking at cash right now. Again, they're not, you know, even operating cash flow positive this year because they're spending so much money trying to compete with other, uh, I should say, competitors in the market. Peloton is just one of these competitors. It's probably the most formidable. But since iFit has product lines that range in the price of a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars, not only are they competing with Peloton at the high end, but they're competing with cheaper brands at the low end as well. So they're kind of all across the spectrum here. I I do wish that I'd seen these margins getting better with time, although I guess I can understand the mentality of if you really believe that the value of your customer is so high that it's worth it to spend a ton of cash on marketing to pull them into the ecosystem early, then I can buy on. And, And we'll get to this, but I just don't see that leverage in their numbers as it exists today. Yeah. And I'm a little wary of that uh, potential for leverage going forward. That All that marketing spend, yes, it drove a doubling of fitness subscribers last year, revenue doubled, but management really sees the hardware business as the key towards driving the, the ecosystem further. And so this margin model, if anything, might show further slackening, meaning it's, it's going to have even less operating leverage. The company bulked up on inventory over the past four quarters. It increased it eightfold to 403 million. So this is partly a reflection of, of a greater higher sales level, but it's also a reflection of management going ahead and manufacturing more product. Um, their their outsource models is their sorry, their manufacturing model is actually an outsource model, but still what they're doing with their cash is bulking up that balance sheet for future sales to drive that hardware part of their business. Um, and I'm a little skeptical of that. I almost wish they would slow down, take the foot off the gas pedal a little bit, and let the ecosystem evolve more organically. I think it would have a better near-term impact on margins, and it might be a better way to grow the business over the longer term. 
I was bummed by that too. As an iFit user myself, my focus has always been when I get on that bike, and I try to get on that bike at least once a day, um, although I will admit I'm lazy here and there. Last week, I took the entire week off, for instance. But when I get on the bike, I'm not thinking about the equipment. I'm not thinking about the hardware. I'm thinking, well, what class am I going to do today? What, what new cool thing do I have on the platform? I look forward to what's next. And I expected this to read a lot more focus on, man, we are creating just a really sticky ecosystem of subscription level revenue that's going to keep people engaged. But the focus on hardware makes me a bit concerned, especially as we head into what's probably going to be, and I think we've seen it a bit with Peloton's results, a challenging time for hardware workout equipment manufacturers to sell through, especially at the rate that they did in 2020. And that's made all the much more concerning to me when I look at some of the numbers they broke down. And I'm bummed because they didn't provide a ton of great information, but they did at least break down their lifetime value per customer to their customer acquisition costs. And I was really happy to see that their definitions for both of those terms were virtually exactly the same as Peloton's, which provided a nice one-to-one comparison. We look back at Peloton's IPO and the value of their customers versus iFits. And one of the metrics they broke down in addition to that was actually their customer or their net monthly churn by cohort. We talked about this so much for Peloton. Peloton has an impressively low monthly churn. It's always been below 1%, most recently 0.85%. That's for all of their products. So they have a pretty high High level of retention. Um, Nordic Tracks monthly churn, a lot more challenging. Um, they say it's 2.3% in the most recent quarter, but they're excluding a lot of product sales as a part of that. If you include all of their product sales, the churn becomes closer to 3%. Uh, it's just, it's significantly higher than Peloton's. Again, that's a per month number. <laughs> For those of you who are, are listening and, and saying, wait a minute, that that's a per month number. So that, that's very high. Um, Emily, we just have a few minutes left. I want to um, ask you for any further thoughts on customer acquisition costs. And I've got, I guess we should move to risks. I've got a couple of things and and you've got a couple of things to point out as well. Any final thoughts on that long-term value per subscriber? Just that it's not as impressive as you would hope that it would be. Their, their lifetime value per touchscreen product subscriber, so again, not all their customers, was around $566. For Nordic Track, that number is around $3,500, so significantly higher. And while both Nordic Track and Peloton do have a customer acquisition cost that is greater than that lifetime value right now, for Peloton, it's closer to $5 per customer. For Nordic Track, more than, or should say, iFit, more than $57 per customer. So they're losing money on every customer acquired. Um, I think it's an example of the type of person that buys a Nordic Track versus a Peloton or any sort of iFit product. They're coming because they're getting a slightly cheaper product. They're not buying it for the ecosystem. So when that one year membership is over, they're more likely to churn because they bought the bike, they didn't buy the, the platform. If you're a Peloton subscriber, Yes, you're buying the bike, but in reality, you're buying the brand, you're buying the platform, and you want to stay a member of that. So you're less likely to churn um, when your membership comes up for renewal. Yeah, that brand has so much to do with, I think, Peloton's ability to retain its customers to keep that churn low. Um, so just a risk here I wanted to point out. This risk arises out of the use of proceeds, which is one of the sections I read first in an S1. So the company is going to be refinancing some debt that's on the books. It expects that net about $465 million. Part of that will be used to pay down around $300 million in existing notes. And they've got some preferred shares they want to redeem, which are $262 million worth. Um, So they're going to come away with this with still net debt on the books. 
The CEO is going to receive a one-time award of $35 million, which isn't specified uh, as exactly what the provenance of it is. Is it an incentive for taking the company public, et cetera? We don't know. That's okay. What is a little concerning to me is that the company had about $53.2 million in loans to management on the books, and additionally, one loan to an unnamed executive for $9.3 million. Now, in preparation for this IPO, to comply with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, the company forgave this $62.5 million odd worth of loans that management owed the company so that they could go public um, and be in compliance with the Securities and Registration Act and the Sarbanes-Oxley level of compliance that came much later. What concerns me is now the company's pulled its IPO, Emily, because of market conditions. What if they decide never to go public? And we've seen this happen so many times. In essence, the management team will have received $62.5 million worth of loan forgiveness, i.e. income. Um, It just reminds me that this is a company that's been held for a long time. Run is almost a family business, which is a risk you're going to talk about here uh, in a second. Sometimes it takes a little bit of shifting for a management team to to act like a public company rather than one that's run by just a closely knit family and, and group of hands. But this segues into a risk that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, it's a bit disingenuous, isn't it? And and the risk that I wanted to talk about was something that we typically associate as a good thing with the business, which is that this is a founder-led business uh, controlled and operated by a CEO founder. And typically, that's a good thing. And and there are some things I do like about the ownership structure. One thing that we haven't mentioned is uh, Planet Fitness is actually a minority owner in this business. They have some interesting partnerships with them. But the big risk here is that it's it's not just a founder-CEO, it's a family business. And um, when I see a ton of family that, not to be rude, is otherwise not necessarily qualified for the roles that they're sitting in, um, it starts to make me a little bit nervous. And so the chief experience officer, the chief strategy officer, the chief operating officer, and the chief marketing officer are all family of Scott Watersons. And even more concerning is the fact that none of them have professional experience prior to coming on to iFit. So they all went straight out of undergrad into the company. And while they've been in their roles for a long time, it does make me wonder if this company was genuine about ever wanting to go public, right? These are people who are otherwise probably wouldn't be qualified to sit in their roles at a public company. Um, management's getting that you know $60 million kickback for just having filed in the first place. It does strike me as a little bit, well, I guess, shady is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Time will tell, but it's not a good look to begin with. So we'll give them the benefit of the doubt for now, Emily. But I share your concerns, especially with this element of having a group of family members elevated to basically the C-suite. It's sometimes hard to get the correct amount of pushback and uh, tug between consensus decision-making and thoughtful exercises where People aren't afraid to contribute their opinions. In family businesses, sometimes you see a dominant founder, i.e., you know, dad, can exert oversized influence on the rest of the management (laughs) team. I'm not sure how well that translates into the public sphere. Well, this will be an interesting one to keep our eye on regardless. Selfishly, I hope that this business does continue to put a ton of money into that iFit platform because as a user myself, I'm a big fan. But as an investor, I am not sweating the fact that I own Peloton shares, not iFit shares, even if they were publicly available, simply because the metrics that we've been provided here make me think that one has kind of set itself apart from the other. For sure. 
Well, Emily, this was a lot of fun, and I feel much more fit after this <laughs> exercise for the last half hour. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for joining me, and thank you for the puns, as always. <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.